prior to the last mass, I was kind of getting ready, checking on things. So I was just wearing the blacks and I was walking around the back and a sweet little girl stopped me. She said, Father, I have a question. Okay. And uh, she had a book um, with church stuff in it. And uh, there's a picture of a priest with his vestments on. She said, do you wear this? I said, well, yeah, I will be, right? I'll be wearing the, the white one underneath and then a white one on top today. And she said, oh, okay. Can you wear rainbow? <laughs> and I said, no, I, I can't wear rainbow. And she said, why not? <laughs> I said, because I have to wear what they tell me to do or I get in trouble. She understood that. Um, so the colors all mean something, right? Uh, the, the colors that the church has us wear. And today I wear white. And anytime the priest and deacon wear white, it means a great celebration, great celebration. Today we celebrate the solemnity of Jesus Christ, uh, Lord and King of the universe, Christ the King. And at the end of the church year, what happens is we, we become more and more focused on the end times, all the stuff that's going to happen at the end. And um, so today is the last Sunday of the church year, just like there's a fiscal year and a calendar year. Today is the last Sunday of the church year. Next Sunday begins a new, a new year. One of the moms came up to me after Mass, and she said, yeah, so this one, one of the three boys, this one, four boys, one of the boys, said, so we don't have to go to church for an entire year. And she said, unfortunately for you, or fortunately for you, the church year begins next Sunday. You don't get to wait a whole year. Okay, so we're at the end, focusing on Jesus as king. So let's consider kingship, monarchy, monarchal types of leadership, all right? Um, throughout history, one of the most efficient forms of governing anything is monarchical. So particularly in the Middle Ages, it's very efficient to have a king and queen or queen. Um, it can be very, very efficient, and it could be very, very good if you had a good king, if you had a wise king, right? If you had a king who, and there were throughout history, there were times uh, that the king was righteous and good, even in the Old Testament. I can't, you think of King David. Now, King David was far from perfect. A King Solomon who followed him, great kings who, who you know, thought first of their people and were wise and good, etc. They pursued the good. And then there were other times when the kings were not so good. And, and herein lies the problem of monarchies, is you might have a good one now, but the pitfall of monarchies is who you got next. And very often, because of how monarchies work, it's, it's the son, you know, and, and the son usually is never as good as, as the good king. Uh, with Solomon, it was different, but oftentimes it wasn't that way. So the pitfall of monarchy is that the effectiveness, the efficiency, the goodness of the, of the ruling of that monarch is dependent upon their own virtue and goodness. And to the degree that they're vicious, it all goes, right? But to the degree that they're good, it also follows into goodness. Now, my assertion is that a monarchical style of governance is the most common form of government still today 
in all of, well, many of our institutions. Let me explain. Your family is not a democracy. Mom and dad are essentially monarchs. And if you want, mom and dad, if you do wish to run your family as a democracy, I suggest you only have two children. <laughs> now, of course, you know, parents, you might ask kids for, you know, what do you think about this? What should we have for dinner? What should, you know, there's little things, of course. You involve them and you certainly listen and, and all the rest. But mom and dad make decisions. It's how it works. And it's, I would assert, the way it ought to work. It's also the way that God designed it to work. So all of families are, in that sense, monarchical, right? They have a centralized uh, decision-making and sort of power center. Most businesses run the same way. Most businesses are run with someone who's in charge. It is extremely rare for that person to make decisions based upon the democracy of their employees, in fact, any of you who've run a business will probably agree that that's not a very effective way to do it. And it's been tried and been found to not to be very effective, which doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean you don't have conversation. It doesn't mean you don't listen. It does, you know, that, but somebody makes the decision, and it's not everybody. It's somebody. Now, God has also set up the church the same way. Even before the Catholic Church with, within Judaism, it's monarchical, right? It's the same sort of thing. And as uh, Jesus institutes uh, the Catholic Church, he institutes it around the apostles. He gives them authority. So the church itself is also hierarchical and monarchical, right? So the, the pastor is in charge of the parish. It doesn't mean he doesn't listen. It doesn't mean that he doesn't take... Uh, people's uh, feelings and ideas into consideration, but he decides. And within a diocese, the bishop decides. And within the universal church, the pope decides. Now, the, the pitfalls of these three sectors are the same as the pitfall of a king or queen of, of old, if you think of that that way, which is namely the quality of leadership in each of those institutions, family, business, church, is very much dependent on the individual, which places a great burden on the individual, but it also is what can create such a disparity of success, right, efficiency, effectiveness. Now, as Catholics, you see that by, by going from church to church. You can tell pretty quickly which church has good leadership and which does not. But I would suggest it's the same within business and in families. I taught the parents a few weeks ago for faith formation about virtue. How, is vir how does it work? What is a virtue? How is it incorporated? How is it attained, you know, namely for your children? How do you grow in virtue? It's not a mystery, but unless you've actually studied it and know it, we don't always think about it. Anyway, um, before that, I, I told them, before the, the class, I looked up on Amazon, parenting books, and it came back with more than 10,000 parenting books, right? Business books, we all know, is the same. Um, there's a number of priest books, but there probably should be more. Uh, and what's my point with that is we know parents, priests, 
business leaders, we know the burden that is placed upon us to make these decisions. And we want to be the best we can. And so there's all these resources out there because we're all looking to be as, as good as we can because we understand that we're fallible. We understand that, that we lack, we all lack in some way, but we want to do the best we can for our children, for our employees and those we serve, our customers, as well as, of course, for our people in the church. Okay, that's a long setup. What, I, what I'm trying to convey is this kind of thing, this sort of style or structure is absolutely embedded in our culture. And it's the primary style of, if you will, governance in our culture. And God himself claims to be king. Jesus Christ claims to be king. And what does that mean? And there's something we can learn about our own sort of uh, leadership and authority in relation to, to Jesus Christ. So, Two points. The first is this. As Jesus enacts his kingship, what is the most visible sign of that reign? What is the uh, most powerful act, sovereign act of our king? He ascends his throne, which is the cross, and there he dies for all of us. So he uses his authority, he uses his power to make himself a victim for our salvation and for our good. This is particularly, I think, relevant for for pastors and parents. That, yes, the authority is there, but he doesn't lord it over us. Rather, he, he makes his authority subject to the good of his people. He dies for his people. Just as any father or mother or priest should see their life as a sacrifice for those they have authority over, so too Jesus, of course, gives us that model. Right? As opposed to, you know, what a bad king might do, just focusing on their own power and their own sort of worldly good, his focus is our good. His focus is, how do I give the greatest gift I can to my people? I need to die for them. And so he did. This is the kind of king we have. And then he says to us, today's gospel, that if I am your king, if if you're going to choose for me to be your king, you don't have to. And, you know, you need to, there's repercussions to that. But if you choose for me to be your king, then this is how I want you as my subjects to act, right? And he talks about how we treat one another is how we treat him. And so his desire for us is to be a people who don't seek division, don't seek conflict, but that we be a people who help each other up, who are truly there for one another, who are reaching out, that as Paul says, there's, no, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither, you know, Republican or Democrat, uh, to put it in a kind of a common parlance. That divisiveness, I mean, maybe that's going to exist out there, but not in here. We are united 
we are one body. Father, we have to help everyone up, even the Republicans. Yes. (laughs) Even the Chicago Bears fans. Yes, even them. (laughs) Particularly the people we might see ourselves at odds with, which is my point. Yes, we help them up too. That's who we are. We are persons in Jesus Christ first. And that is what unites us. And that is the greatest good we have, Jesus Christ. And is this not what the world needs to see? Does the world not need to see greater love and compassion and reconciliation, even though we disagree on very important things out there? In here, we are one. We are united because it's Jesus Christ who brings us together. It's Jesus Christ who makes us strong. It's Jesus Christ who dwells within us and helps us to be truly charitable, truly loving to our brothers and sisters. Please stand.